Hello and welcome to the Lacey Jane podcast. I am Lacey Jane and I'm here to share my personal stories of trauma and healing and growth to inspire you and to empower you to be the hero of your own story. It doesn't matter what you've been through. You can consciously create a life that you love and are so deserving of. And I am so grateful that I have this platform to share it with you. I don't have a fancy jingle yet or anything like that, but I felt so called to get this podcast out and up for you. So this is the very first episode of my podcast, and I'm so thankful that you're here. Let's dive in. Now, this episode is going to be sharing my personal life stories and the most significant memories in my life. So I did just want to hop on and give you guys a quick warning that this episode contains discussions and depictions of traumatic events, so listener discretion is advised. Hello, hello, hello. My goodness, this is the very first episode of my new podcast. And I cannot tell you how excited I am to finally do this. This has been so many years in the process, but I can't even say it's been the process because it's just been an idea that I've had and like this soul calling that I've known that I needed to start a podcast. And I was always just too scared to start it. But here we are. We are in the very first podcast episode and I have tears in my eyes because I feel so grateful to have this platform, to have this opportunity to be able to come on here and just speak whatever is on my heart and have it open for the world to listen to. You know, to leave a legacy behind When my daughter gets older, if I'm not around, she can come back and she can listen to these. She can hear my voice. She can hear my heart, the words that I have to tell you. And I hope that you can genuinely feel my heart and my soul with this. I will always be upfront and honest with you and authentic and transparent and share what's put on my heart. I know that there is just so much that's inside of me that is begging to come out because I have been quiet for so long. And so this very first podcast episode is going to be me just kind of giving you a little backstory about my life and opening up so many chapters of what's to come within this podcast, what's to come within my future content. Because like I said, I have been through so much. I have so many lessons. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I have so many lessons that I've learned and so many downloads that I receive that are just honestly so good. They're so golden. I cannot keep these inside of me any longer. They are just bursting to come out. So (laughs) they're just begging to come out. Like I'm going to burst if I don't get this out. So very first podcast episode. And I'm sitting here and I have no script. This is just going to be me speaking from my heart. So I'm just going to go through my life so that you can get to know me on a more personal level and get to know my heart and where I'm coming from and what kind of person I am and my beliefs and my values and morals and, and those things. So let's start off with my childhood. I really don't remember much from my childhood. I'm working with my therapist and one of the 
first things that we did together was do like a timeline of our life. So I guess that's what we'll do here. We're going to do a timeline of my life, again, just so that you can get to know me on a more personal level. And then from that, I will start sharing more about the lessons I've learned, stories, and, and just things that I feel called to speak about. So let's start with... My mom and my dad were married um, for, they were high school sweethearts, actually. They had me and my brother, Landry. So Landry are three years apart. I'm the oldest, and my mom, our parents were married for, gosh, I don't know, 12 years or so. But like I said, they were high school sweethearts as well. So they were together, I think, in total for 18 years. I was nine years old when they divorced. And I don't really remember much about them ever being together other than we would go to church every Sunday. We were very involved in the Christian non-denominational church. And I grew up that way. We were in church every Sunday. And that's really all that I remember. So then my parents got divorced and my dad started seeing this woman named Cindy. Um, she was there for me when my mom wasn't. She was there for me to help me. You know, she taught me how to do my makeup, how to curl my hair. She would take me to craft shows with her. We did a lot of things together. But at the time, I I liked her and I liked that she was always there for me. But at the time, and she knows this, I've told her this, that I, I kind of gave her a hard time because I wanted my mom and dad back together. And it was hard for me to accept that they weren't going to get back together. And so naturally, as a child would do, you know, you kind of get upset and you say things like, well, you're not my mom. You can't tell me what to do, <laughs> you know, and things like that. But she was always there for me. Um, and she was just a perfect example. She was really someone that I needed at that moment in my life where I was growing and developing and becoming, you know, becoming a teenager. So her and my dad were together for five years and they were engaged. So from the time I was nine to 14, she was like my mom for me. My mom actually went off and she was, she got with, it, it was it was really chaotic after my mom and dad divorced. And so I pretty much spent a lot of my time with my dad and Cindy. I lived there. I think we started like I would stay a week there at, at my mom mom's house and then I would stay a week at my dad and Cindy's. And then it got to the point where I would only go see my mom every other weekend. And my mom was actually admitted into a mental hospital and I just remember whenever I would go over to her house, I felt very unsafe. It was like I had this really good, safe, stable home over at my dad's. But then when I went over to my mom's, I felt very unsafe. It felt very dark and cold. And I've always been very, very intuitive. I, I just always felt I could feel the energy with being at my mom's. And it just felt dark and it felt cold and lonely and scary to be if I'm being completely honest and I I had this big deep fear of death that I was going to die that my brother was going to die that my mom was going to die and it didn't feel safe to me at all I remember laying awake at night at her house and I just I couldn't sleep I would lay awake at night and just worry about every little thing um and then I would go over to my dad's and it was like this safe, stable home. My dad was like my hero. He taught me how to play basketball. You know, he was, he was always there for me in ways that my mom wasn't or couldn't be, I should say. Like she just wasn't emotionally available 
And looking back, I don't think my dad was very emotionally available either, but he was more, he he was able to provide me that sense of safety and stability that I didn't feel when I was with my mom. And I know in my heart that my mom has always just done the best that she could with what she knew at the time. Looking back now, I know that she was on drugs, but at the time I didn't know that. I mean, I think it's taken me until like a couple of years ago that I've realized that my mom has always been on drugs, but it, like I said, it's taken me that long to realize that she was on drugs because I, I don't know if it was because I was in denial or I, I just didn't want to see it. I didn't want to admit to myself or I just trusted my mom that much that I didn't believe that she was ever on drugs. So anyways, like I said, um, it felt very unsafe with my mom. And so I ended up going to my dad's a lot more often, living with him, and then only going to see my mom every other weekend. My mom would bounce around. She moved several times, got married. She's been married and divorced seven or eight times, I think, with seven different guys because she remarried one guy twice. So the life with my mom was very unstable and uncertain. And like I said, I really believe that my mom did the best that she could with what she knew. She was a single mom. She was trying her best to raise two kids. And I don't blame her. I know that she was doing the best that she could with what she knew at the time. And I remember, I believe it was a Friday night and dad said that Landry and I were going to go out to eat with him. And I remember thinking, well, that's really weird. Why isn't Cindy coming with us? And I could just tell something was off. And we got in the car and dad's driving down the road and we got to the interstate and he turns around and he tells us that Cindy and him are breaking up. And I just like froze. I felt like I had so many questions. A lump was forming in my throat. My eyes were filling up with tears and I was trying so hard not to cry but I was completely devastated. When we came back home, she was downstairs in the basement packing up her stuff in boxes and I went down there and hugged her and we both cried and it wasn't shortly after that that she moved out. By this time, I wanna say I was a probably sixth grade and I was a cheerleader and it was halftime on a Saturday and I was like, my my mom had showed up to that game and I was with her that week or weekend. I can't really remember. And I was like, I don't know where dad is. He was supposed to be here. And it was halftime and she's like, well, do you want to run over there real quick and see? So I was like, yeah, let's go see what he's doing. So we went over to my dad's house and I the door was locked so I knocked and he came down and he was standing by in front of the door and he was like kind of trying to block the door and I was like hey what are you doing and he's like nothing I was like is someone here this is like my intuition knew and he's like no no one's here it's just a coffee pot and I was like well I need to get my nail polishes I don't know why I said I needed to get my nail polishes because that's not why I was there. I was there to confront him and ask him why he wasn't at my cheerleading, you know, the basketball game that I was cheerleading at. 
And that was just the one thing that came to my mind. So he let me, I could tell he was so nervous. And so I went upstairs and instead of going to my bedroom, which would have been straight across the hall, um, I went to my dad's bedroom and it was like to the left of my bedroom. And then no one was in his bedroom, but he had a master bathroom like attached to his bedroom. So then I turned the corner and tried to get in his bathroom and I could feel someone holding the door. And it was this woman, and I, I can't really say her name just for legal reasons, but she was holding the door and eventually she let go of it and opened it and she was standing there in a towel. And I just saw this very young woman. She was like 21 or 22 at this time. And she opened the door. She had really long blonde hair. She was beautiful. And she was like, hi. Um, And I just, I was like, hi. And I was frozen. And then I ran out. I grabbed my nail polishes from my bedroom and I ran downstairs and I ran out of the house and I could hear my mom say, is someone here? You have someone here? And my dad was like, yeah. And I was like, I hate you. You're such a liar. And I got in the car and I don't remember what my mom said. I really don't remember anything other than getting in the car and just crying and then not going back to finish the rest of my cheerleading for that basketball game. I just went home and I cried to find out like eventually like over time, like I would go over to my dad's house and he started dating her obviously. And she moved in fairly quickly. I would just go over there and I just felt completely unwanted. My dad went from being this superhero to me the person that had provided me this safe, stable home. And I always felt so safe with him. He was my hero. He was my everything. And now I go over there and I just feel so unwelcomed. I feel like he doesn't want me there. I feel like a burden to him. And I remember sitting there one night, we were doing my homework and it was in the kitchen. My dad's girlfriend who was living with us, um, she was standing across the counter. I was sitting there doing my homework and they were helping me with my homework. And I was just so frustrated because she was getting frustrated with me for not knowing the answers, but I didn't understand. I, I, I didn't understand it. And I was so frustrated. And I said, I hate this. I want to go live with mom. And she looked me right in the eyes and she said, are you sure that's what you want? And I said, yes, I want to go live with my mom. And she said, again, looked me straight in the eyes and she said, Lacey, are you absolutely positively sure that you want to go live with your mom? And out of my teenage rage, 14 at the time, yes, I want to go live with my mom. I hate living here. And she said, okay, if that's what you want, you can go pack your bags and I'll call your mom. My dad didn't say anything. And that's exactly what happened. I packed my bags and I went and lived with my mom and I never was welcomed into my dad's house again. I never went back to visit. And I had called them so many times I tried to apologize. I left them voicemails. I sent them letters. I sent them emails. I did everything I could. I begged them to forgive me and they did not care. My brother continued to stay there and it wasn't very long until she was able to get him to permanently leave as well. But that's his story to tell. Yeah, they they ended up eloping. My dad sold their house. They got a house on the lake. And then they ended up moving to Indianapolis, which from my hometown, that's about 90 miles 
away um, from where we lived. And then they ended up having two children together, which I have never met either one of them. So I was 14 at this time. And like at my dad's, it was very strict. We had a lot of rules. We couldn't talk back. We really couldn't question anything ever. It never felt safe to use our voice, to express our emotions, to express our feelings. It was never a safe space to do that. And so we learned to just be quiet and just agree with everything. And that's just the way it was. Even though to me, it felt safe at that time, looking back on it, I wasn't safe to do those things. But it still felt like a safe and stable environment for me. Whereas with my mom, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to afford the rent, right? It just, it was a completely different feeling. And being so intuitive and knowing how to read energy, I realize now that that's what that was. But at the time, I really couldn't, I didn't understand why I felt that way when I was with my dad compared to when I was with my mom. And so the years that I spent living with my mom were horrible. They were awful. We would have good times where we would be best friends. And then we would have times where she was my biggest enemy. And when I say best friends, I mean it like she was buying me cigarettes. She was buying me alcohol. Didn't really have any sense of discipline. There was no structure. My mom would go out to the bars every night Um, I was there to fend for myself, basically, and I ended up having parties, you know, and she would, she would supply the alcohol, and I'd have all these people over, and then it got to the point where she would supply the alcohol, she would, you know, she'd buy us wine coolers and beer, and all of that, and she would tell me, like, just be careful, be safe, don't leave, you know, those were my rules, (laughs) Um, There weren't very many rules. It wasn't strict at all. And it was just so chaotic. And my mom had gotten me in so much trouble from supplying the alcohol and then calling the cops on me. And then we would get in knockdown drag out fights to the point where she would pull my hair out in clumps. She would sit on my chest to where I couldn't breathe. One time she had me pinned on, on my bed against the wall and I was pounding on the wall and her boyfriend at the time came in and ripped her off of me and told her to chill out and that that wasn't okay. I mean, it was just, it was such a chaotic household that I was living in that I didn't feel safe at all, like at all. This went on for quite a while. Obviously I'm not in my mom's shoes and I don't know how hard it was for her, but as a mother now, I understand how difficult it probably was to raise me all on her own while she was dealing with her own mental health issues and my dad not stepping up to the plate to be there to help her or to lend out a hand to help me in any way. And I know for a fact that I was not this perfect child. So by no means am I saying that I was perfect in any of this. I was definitely dealing with so much hurt and pain and feeling like my dad had abandoned me. And it has taken me a very long time to work through those deep abandonment wounds that I felt as a child when all this happened. And so my mom really didn't have the ability to, to know how to help me through that or maybe not even the energy, the space, the knowledge, the skills, the, so- the resources. 
things weren't easily accessible like they are now. And so I don't fault her for anything. I really do think that she was trying the best that she could and doing the best that she could with what she knew at that time. And like I said, I did not make it easy for her. I had a lot of hurt inside of me and feeling like, you know, feeling like I was just abandoned because I was. And so it got to the point where she was just trying to get rid of me. I definitely was not an angel in any sense of the word. I was dealing with so much hurt and pain from feeling like my dad abandoned me and then my mom not knowing how to help me through that. And I think the way that she was able to cope with that was to just shut down and let someone else deal with it. And so because of that, I got sent away basically wherever they would take me. First of all, she sent me to this behavioral center where we stayed for two weeks, um, completely lied and manipulated to get me there. She said we were going to go to Kmart back when Kmarts were still a thing um, and we were going to get hair dye. So I agreed. We went together and she took me to this behavioral center and she said if I didn't get out of the car, they were going to come and pull me out of the car. So I got out and I ended up staying there for two weeks. And then I would never, ever, ever tell anyone that she was the one that would buy me alcohol because I knew that she would get in trouble for that. So I always protected her in that way, even in times when she didn't protect me. I see that now. But as a child, I just, I didn't want her to go to jail. I didn't want anything to happen to her. I never told on her. And then after the two weeks passed, you know, my mom came to get me and it was just the same cycle that kept going on. And she got with another guy and then we moved and it was all these new rules. And now all of a sudden I had three stepsisters and a stepbrother and I had all of these new rules and they didn't like me at all. And I just felt so alone. And I remember coming home one day and my mom had put all of my stuff outside and I needed to get in the house. And I was like knocking on the door. My mom wasn't there, but my stepsister and my stepbrother were there. I was knocking on the window and they were in there and they refused to open the door and they were making faces at me Um, and they were my age. My stepbrother was a couple years older than me and then my stepsister was a year younger than me and I kept knocking like, please let me in, please let me in and all my stuff's out here. They're like, no, you can't come in. You can't come in and like making faces, sticking their tongues out at me. This was my mom's house. This was my house and you're not letting me into my house. I was so mad. So I punched out the window and I got scared after I did that. I didn't realize how angry I was. And now I have my knuckles all bleeding and I'm scared. They won't let me in. And I take my bags that my mom had put outside and I started walking down the road and a couple Uh kids that I went to school with were driving by and they recognized me and they let me get in their car and, and one of the guys took their white tank top and gave it to me so that I could wrap, wrap it around my knuckles. And they took me to, I call them Bubby John, Bubby John's house. Bubby John was my mom's friends who they used to party all the time together. And Bubby John and Kara had five kids and I used to babysit them all of the time. So I always felt like I was welcome there. And I called them and they told me I could come over and I could stay with them. And so they let me live there for a little bit. And it wasn't long after that when a cop showed up at Bubby John's door 
and I knew they were there to get me. So apparently my mom had called me in as a runaway after kicking me out. So my mom had kicked me out and then she called me in as a runaway. So because of that, um, the sheriff came to pick me up, knocking on the door. And I went to the door and I said, please don't do this in front of the kids. And so I went outside and they put handcuffs on me, took me, put me in the cop car. And I was just talking to the cop and I told them like how my mom was. Of course, I didn't tell them that like she was the one that bought me alcohol and supplied me with marijuana or anything like that, which I never, never liked smoking weed. I just honestly did it in front of my mom because I felt like that was a way we could bond and I would fake it. I would like pretend to do it and she would call me out on it sometimes too. Like you didn't even inhale that Um, and make fun of me in front of our friends and stuff. So my mom was always like the party mom and she would always be there when I had a lot of guy friends over and I wanted to mention this. I know I'm kind of getting off track, but I wanted to mention this because this is such a key part. I always noticed my mom would be very flirtatious with all the guys that I would ever bring over. And at that time, there was a song called Stacy's Mom. And every one of my guy friends would change the lyrics to Lacey's Mom. Like I heard that all of the time. My mom is a very beautiful woman, but she was flirtatious with my guy friends. But my mom would always like wear really short shorts. She would bend down in front of them on purpose. I mean, it was like it was so embarrassing. It was something that I knew, but like, how am I going to call my mom out, how, out on that? Like, am I making this up? Like, there's no way that my mom is flirting with these guys that are my age and a little older. older. Like, that's just weird, right? It all comes full circle. <laughs> but so my mom, let's go back to the story of I'm, I'm now in the cop car, right? So I'm in the cop car. They ended up taking me to a juvenile detention center called White's, and that is in Wabash, Indiana. And I stayed there in the, sh- it's called like a holding shelter where I stayed. You got to be in this room, or at least at that time, it was this room. Oh my gosh, I'm like literally shaking because just bringing all this up and remembering how traumatizing that was for my younger self is so sad and so scary. But at the time, like I had to be strong. I I just had to power through. Um, and so I was put in this room. It was literally like a jail cell, but it had a metal door with a little tiny window in it. Everything was concrete. There was a tiny window up at the very tippy top, a cement bed that was like attached to the cement walls. And then this little pad, like a little mattress pad that was on top of the cement brick bed that's coming out of the wall and I had to stay in there for 24 hours to like they had to hold me there for 24 hours I'm not sure why or maybe it was 48 hours I really don't remember but I just had to sit in that white room the whole time like how crazy is that I think I got out a couple times to go to the bathroom but that was it and then from there I went to court and they put handcuffs and shackles on me and my dad showed up to court and I I saw him there and I tried to hug him and I had these handcuffs on me, right? And like I lifted my hands up to, or my arms up as, with the handcuffs on around me and I tried to hug him and he looked at me with such disgust. He wouldn't even hug me. Um, I felt like such a disgrace. My mom was there, you know, of course, and talking about all the reasons why I needed to be sent away. So from there, I got put in a van and they took me up to Couts, Indiana, and I stayed in 
I stayed there for, I want to say 12 months. It may have been 18 months. I don't remember. I honestly do not remember. It was this, um, kind of like a girl school, but there were boys there too. The boys and girls, obviously they were separated. It was just this place where bad kids would go. I say bad kids with like air quotes because I was not a bad kid. Um, I was hurt. I was very hurt and I needed more love. I didn't need to be punished. Right. And so, and when I was there, my roommate was Jenny. And so Jenny and I got really close and the rooms were like cement walls. There were two beds in there, one on either side of the room. And so Jenny had her side, I had my side and she had a picture, a family picture on her wall. And I saw her brother and I'm like, wow, he's really cute. Like what's up with him? She's like, yeah, that's my brother. He's in prison. Like, would you want to write him? And I'm like, yeah, I'll write him because at that point, I had no one to talk to other than Jenny and the other girls that were in there, but I just felt very alone. So why not write someone, right? And besides, he's hot, and <laughs> here I am. <laughs> like, he's in prison. I'm in this. I don't even know what to call it because it's like for teens, it's not a girl's school, but it's like where bad kids go, right? So I'm in there. He's in prison. Seems like a perfect match, right? We're off to a great start. So we wrote for a while. I ended up getting out and I'm trying to think of the timeline because so much happened between then and now. There were so many events that happened that, like I said, I don't really know the correct order that everything happened in. And I'm just now remembering that I was also in foster care, but I don't remember how that happened or when that happened in the timeline. And I guess that's a very normal response after trauma because you're just trying to survive, right? And a lot of times that means that we need to block out whatever's happening so that we can keep ourselves safe. And so I can tell you the events that happened, but I can't really remember the order that they happened in. So I got out of the girls, I'm, I'm going to call it just a girl's school, right? Even though there were boys there, it was like a girl's school. I got out of the girl's school, lived with my mom for a while. And then by this time, my brother now was living with my mom full time. And I feel like I should also mention that I don't really have a relationship with my dad, like still to this day. Like Lacey, get over it, get over the past, the past, you just keep bringing it up you know, never feeling validated in the fact that he abandoned me. He never admitted it. He would never apologize for it. He hurt me so tremendously that I had suffered from abandonment wounds for so long because I just felt like my dad, my hero, the man that I loved that protected me when I felt like I had no one else, um, he was no longer there for me. He just left me. He left me to deal with my mom and I became like this motherly figure for my mom, even though, you know, trying to protect her when she didn't protect me. And so there's still a lot of hurt feelings for that, just because I don't think I'll ever get that validation or that apology from my dad. My dad wants to sweep it under the rug and be like, you know, get over it. It's in the past. And I do understand that. I do understand that there is a time and a place where we need to just power through and get over it, right? But there's also this toxic positivity and this toxic 
perspective of spirituality that says you need to just focus on the positive and anything other than positive doesn't need to be in your life. Well, that's not true. Life is about duality and the more that we can hold, the more that we can receive. And what I mean by that, and this is probably going to be another podcast episode, is that we need to acknowledge the hurt that we've caused other people because that's val- that's very validating and that heals both of us, right? To admit, I, I abandoned you and I'm very sorry. That must have hurt you so bad. That could be so, so healing. It doesn't matter how much you've messed up, right? Or just admitting that you were never there for someone when they needed you. Um, like my dad, if he would just admit it and apologize, I'm sure that we could maybe try to continue to have a relationship, but he's hurt me so bad because he fails to acknowledge that he's hurt me. Um, but that's okay because I can continue to share my life and my experiences and I can find the lessons in that to grow and heal my inner child. The, the, you know, 14 year old Lacey who just wanted her dad there to protect her and he wasn't there what can I give myself that? You know, how can I give myself that? So um, little side note, but I want you to understand where I'm coming from with my views and how I feel about things. Hey, it's Lacey. And I wanted to share with you something that I'm super passionate about. So if you don't know, I have a nonprofit called Tiny Homes for Moms Co. And our mission is to empower women and children to heal, connect and thrive in community living. We all need our tribe and our vision is a world where every mother feels supported and every child feels safe. Our goal is to purchase 100 acres and transform it into a wellness village for women and children to heal, connect, and thrive in community living. If you would like to donate to my nonprofit, check out tinyhomesformoms.com. There you can keep up to date, donate, and learn more about our mission and vision. Again, that's tinyhomesformoms.com. Thank you so much for your support. And let's get back to the episode. I was living with my mom and it was just like the same cycle that was happening over and over. We would party a lot. And at this time, my brother was living with us full time and my mom was never, you know, our mom was never home. And so we would have parties and he brought home this one friend who I thought was super hot. Um, He was a little older than him. So he was, I think it was like a year younger than me. And he said that he had just moved to Indiana where we lived to live with his aunt because he was a recovering meth addict. And I didn't believe him that he was a meth addict because he didn't look look like the typical meth addict. Granted, I think we were like 16 or 17 at that time. Um, I thought that he was just saying those things to try to be cool. I know that sounds so crazy, but at that age, kids just say things, you know, like you're partying. And I thought he was just making that up and didn't really believe that he was really on meth. But anyway... We got together and I ended up getting emancipated at this time, which basically means when you get emancipated, you are considered an adult. So if I were to get in trouble or my mom was to call me in as a runaway or anything like that, there was there would be nothing that they could do, right? Because she is signing over guardianship to me. I am now considered an adult. So I got emancipated and then I dropped out of school in 10th grade and I got my GED. 
crazy to me to think that at that age, I was considered an adult and completely on my own. And I've basically been on my own since then. So my boyfriend at the time, the one who claimed to be a recovering meth addict, ended up moving to Minnesota. He had talked me into it. I knew that he wanted to go back there. And so I was supportive of it. What did I have to live for around here in Indiana? I felt like I had nothing to lose, so let's go. We lived with his parents for a while down in their basement. They had this huge, beautiful home. His parents were still married. Like It was a good family. We were able to save up enough money and get on our feet. I was working actually two jobs, so I would work from 5 in the morning at a grocery store in the bakery um, from 5 in the morning until 1, 1.30 in the afternoon at a pizza place from 4.30 at night until 9.30 at night. So I was working two jobs and he was working at Arby's. And so supposedly, <laughs> that's what I was told anyways. And so we were able to save up enough money. We got ourselves an apartment in downtown Brainerd, Minnesota. Um, it was above a Christian bookstore. Um, so our apartment was directly above a Christian bookstore. We got moved in, we got our things, and it wasn't shortly after that that I just felt so unsafe. I couldn't really put my finger on it. I I didn't feel like, I, I didn't know if he was cheating on me or what was happening, but I could just tell he was being unfaithful in some way to me. He came home one night and he got a butcher knife out and he chased me with the butcher knife. Um, I was trying to seduce him. The look in his eyes, it was terrifying to me. And that was the only thing I knew to do in that moment was to try to seduce him, to get his mind off of it, to try to get him to calm down so he didn't murder me. And I, I was just doing everything that I intuitively knew to do to get him to calm down. His face was beet red. His eyes were completely black. It was the scariest thing I've ever went through. And he got me on the bed and he sat on my chest and he took the butcher knife up over his head and he came down as fast as he could and he stopped right before he got to my heart. And I really, I just closed my eyes and I really thought he was going to kill me and there was nothing that I could do at that point. I, I just accepted it. And then shortly after that, he, he, right after he stopped, he got off of me, he went in the closet and he had that knife and he acted like he was going to kill himself. He then went to our, we had a phone, like a um, landline phone. We didn't have cell phones then. Um, he ripped the phone out of the wall so I couldn't call anybody. He went downstairs and outside and I locked the door. Oh yes, he threw, he, I had a kitten and he threw my kitten up in the wall. My kitten got a nosebleed and then he went outside and he slashed my tires to my car and he left and I was so shaken up. Uh, here I am states away from my family. I don't have a phone that I can call anybody. I'm completely alone. I can't take my car anywhere. I absolutely loved his mom. But I couldn't call her right now because I didn't have a phone or anything. And so I waited until the morning until the Christian bookstore opened up and I went down there and I called my, I called his mom and I told her what happened and she came over right away to comfort me and console me and to make sure that I was safe. She knew that that's why he didn't want to come, you know, why, this is why she had him moved with his aunt to Indiana because of the meth. And 
I didn't believe that. And I should have believed that I should have listened to my intuition, but I didn't. I have so much compassion for myself back then because I just wanted a family. It didn't matter how old I was. I thought I knew I thought I knew it all at that time, right? I was able to call my my grandpa um and my grandpa said just take a train home and I'm like, "No, please, please, I need to take my cat." But really I just needed them with me. Like I needed to feel safe. I wanted my family there. I wanted to feel safe with my family. I wanted them to come save me and protect me. That was the real reason. Um, I just used the cat as an excuse because I did want to bring the cat, but I could have gotten like a crate or something and brought the cat with me on the train. But I wanted them there and they came to get me. My mom, my grandma, and my grandpa came to get me and my cat. And I just still to this day, they don't talk about how horrific the situation was about how scary it must have been for me about how they're grateful that I'm alive it it's always I can't believe how hot it was in that apartment so when they got there they say it was like 97 degrees in my apartment (laughs) we were young kids I guess it didn't affect me that much and we didn't really have that much money so that's what they want to talk about is the air conditioning, that there was no air conditioner in there and that it was so hot in that apartment they could barely breathe. But here I am. I just went through the most traumatizing thing I've ever experienced in my entire life. And after I had moved back, I had called him. So I asked him why he did that. And he told me that my face kept going in and out of like a devil and then it would go back to me and then would go to act to a devil. You know, obviously he was back on meth, probably hadn't slept in days. But I needed to know why he did that, and I got my answer. That was why. So I went back, and at this point, my mom was like, you can't live with me. So I went and I lived with my grandparents, which was totally fine. I love my grandparents, but at the time, I'm like, please let me live with you. I wanted to live with my mom because I had more freedom there, but my mom didn't want me living with her. And so she thought that my grandparents weren't going to be able to control me. She had made it seem that I was just so out of control and that she just couldn't handle it. You know, as you know, she's very, very good and always has been very good at playing the victim so that other people feel sorry for her. And so she had my grandparents believing that I was just so out of control (laughs) and that they wouldn't be able to control me. And this was going to be proof that if I go live with them, then they'll see how I really am. I went and lived with my grandparents and that completely backfired on my mom because my grandma and I got very close. It was like a mother and a daughter relationship. And we became really, really close. And this completely backfired on my mom because my mom was very jealous over that. She saw how close my grandma and I were getting and she hated it. So I lived with them for a while. And this entire time that I was living with my grandma and the entire time that I was out, I was still writing Jenny's brother from prison. He was still in prison and I was still writing him. So we would just continue to write back and forth. And at this point, he was almost out of prison. And so I was like, I'm going to go see him. Um, And I I was working at Arby's at the time. And I was also working at at a factory job where we made like Sunny D bottles And I was running the assembly line there working third shift. And I got that factory job where I was making a little bit more money. I saved up some money and my friend and I were like, let's, I got a car. 
brought my friend. I'm like, let's go see Jason. His name was Jason. Let's go see Jason in prison. Like, let's go meet him and see if there's anything there. Cause I've been writing this guy for years now. Right. So I wanted to go meet him. Sounds like a great idea. (laughs) So no one was stopping me. You know, my grandparents were all about it. Um, and I had their support. And so we went, I met him in prison. He lived at, this was in Illinois. So it wasn't that far of a drive. Um, went and met him. I thought that I was in love. He thought he was in love. And we had made plans that when he was going to get out in a couple months that we would get together. Right. And so that's exactly what we did. I will say that I felt like a burden to my grandparents, even though we were really close. There was always this sense, again, my intuition, I felt like I wasn't wanted there. And this wasn't the feeling, this isn't like hypervigilance where we feel like, you know, everyone is after us or we replay scenarios that have already happened. So like feeling like I was abandoned by my dad and feeling like a burden to my dad. I wasn't making up these scenarios of feeling like I wasn't wanted by my grandparents. I know my grandparents loved me, but they wanted their own privacy, right? Like they wanted to do their own thing. They didn't want to have to worry about me and they encouraged me you know, and they, and they hyped me up about, well, you could go live with him when he gets out of prison. And so, yes, I did feel like a burden. I intuitively felt like I wasn't really welcomed there. Right. I do not blame them one bit. They had already raised their kids. They are getting older. Like they don't need to be taking care of me. You know, I was already emancipated. I've lived on my own. And so I do not blame them whatsoever, but I did feel pressured to move out at such a young age even with my grandparents, you know, they're, them encouraging me, you know, people change and I do believe people change. However, let's look at the facts here. This dude is in prison. I, I, just being a mother myself right now, I just can't fathom allowing that. My, my daughter can stay living with me as long as she needs and she is welcome back in my house anytime. And I always want what's best for her. So I, it just blows my mind looking back on it now about how, how different it was. And I, and I also have to look into, you know, the way that my grandparents were raised. My grandma, not to get too far off topic, but my grandma moved out of her house when she was 12 years old to go live on her own because her mother never wanted her. This is generational, right? Like this is actually generational trauma and cycles that we're breaking and healing from. So anyways, that's exactly what I did. He got out of prison and I went to go pick him up from prison. And from there, we drove to his dad's house and we stayed the night at his dad's house. And then he got a job working as a garbage man. And I got a job working at a nursing home. I was actually working at the nursing home and working at Dairy Queen. So I had two jobs. And then we got an apartment. And after this went on for a while, I wanted to be closer to my family. So we moved, this was in Illinois. So then we moved back to Indiana and we got married. And that is Jaylee's dad. That is my daughter's dad. So we got pregnant. I actually had an ectopic pregnancy. Let's see, that was in January 8th of 2008 when I was rushed into surgery after they had told me I had a miscarriage and I was still in so much pain, but I ended up having to go back. 
and they did an ultrasound and that's when they saw that there was a baby growing within my fallopian tube. Um, and so I got rushed down to emergency surgery and, and had to get half of my fallopian tube or all of my fallopian tube because you have two. So I got one of them removed. And being that, that that was an emergency surgery, if I didn't have the surgery, then I would have died. And so they had to cut the baby out. Obviously, the pregnancy wasn't viable after that, and so I lost that baby. And shortly after that, I got pregnant with Jaylee. I started sharing my pregnancy on YouTube. And this was before people did YouTube videos, okay? This was like 2009 when vlogging wasn't even a thing. I had a baby shower when I was about five months along, but I wanted to bring up the baby shower because this was the first time there was any signs of infidelity. So I was sitting there at the table with all of our guests surrounding us. This was in the church gymnasium. And my cousin walked in with a woman. So my cousin, my cousin's a lesbian. And so she had a woman with her. And they walked in together. <clears throat> and I saw Jason and her wave to each other. But that's not what made me suspicious. It was the fact that both of them... They couldn't help but wave to each other, but then shortly after they realized that they were waving at each other, they hurried up and like put their hand down to like make it look like they weren't waving at each other. And so that's kind of where I was like, wait a minute, why are you hiding that? I asked him, I was like, how do you know her? And she's like, and he said that they worked together. And so I just felt like that was obviously... I couldn't accuse him of cheating over waving to someone, but that was the first time that I had ever had any suspicion of him being, you know, of cheating on me at all. So yeah, that was my baby shower. That's what I remember from that. So as I mentioned, we got a house and my mom actually ended up moving in with us. We let her live down in the basement and my husband and my mom were actually working together. So they would carpool to work together. And I just had, my intuition just knew something was off and I just knew that they were doing something. But like my logical brain is like, how could that even happen? Like, why would he want her? What would she want with him? Why would they, they would not do this to me? Why would they do this to me? And all of these questions when like my inner intuition was like, they're, they're messing around. They're, they're being intimate together. And I tried to, you know, my logical brain wanted to, wanted answers for this because it didn't make any sense to me why they would do this to me. And by this time I had given birth to my daughter and I felt so completely alone. I felt like I was doing everything by myself. I had to cook, I had to clean. And here my mom was here to air quotes, help me, you know, with my daughter and she wasn't helping me. I felt so alone in those times. And I can honestly say that I really did take the time to be so present and intentional with my daughter because I knew that it was going to go by so fast. So I really soaked in every moment. I just remember feeding her at night and it was, it was so such a great time in my life but also such a horrible time in my life because I felt so alone and I felt like I had no help but at the same hand it was great because I had her all to myself right I was able to really get those one-on-one -on -one, that one-on-one -on -one time with her that I needed and that she needed 
when she was a newborn to create that bond and it was great. But because of feeling like I had no help, uh, my husband and I, we, we were fighting a lot and he started drinking a lot and he would hide drinking from me. He would go say that he would go out to the garage because he had all of his workout equipment out there and he would work out, but he would also be drinking for hours at a time and he would hide all this from me. And he would come in and we'd argue. And every time we fought, my mom would come up from downstairs and she would take his side every single time. She would take his side. And I'm like, this is so weird. Why is she always taking his side? And I never said anything until one time I did say something. I was like, why are you always taking his side? I, you don't need to get involved in this. This has nothing to do with you. So that was a boundary that was crossed between my mom. And I, and I, um, finally had to say something. It wasn't shortly after that, that she ended up getting a house. She started renting a house. It was like a block, block or so away from us. My husband and her would still carpool together and she would also come over to visit, you know, and pretend to be a part of my daughter's life, you know, pick her up for five seconds and hand her off and, you know, go a longer way. It's so weird to me now to look back on it. Like it's so clearly like I I can see it so clearly. But at the time I, I was questioning what is wrong with me? What is wrong with my daughter? Like, what are we doing so wrong? Why do, why do they not want to help us? Looking back on it now, I'm like, wow, they were really, really horrible to me. I did not deserve that. Jaylee did not deserve that. We deserved so much better. Uh, My husband and I, we just kept fighting And so we thought that it would be best if my husband at the time would move in to my mom's house that she was renting. And then my mom would move in with me to quote air quotes to help me with my daughter. And so that's what we did. He moved in to her apart uh, to her rental house. And then she moved back in with me to quote unquote help me with my daughter didn't really help me much but throughout the time we started to get closer and she started opening up to me about all of these times that my husband was cheating on me you know with all these different women and I had always suspected that he was cheating on me but I never accused him of it probably because I didn't want to see it for myself I didn't want to lose my family I've always just wanted a family and that's the only thing that I've ever wanted. And I refuse to acknowledge it. But then when my mom was telling me all these things and, you know, really um, confirming all of the things that I knew in my gut, like the girls that he, that she was talking about, like I knew, I knew that what she was saying was true. And so I got in my car, even though it was only a block away, I got in my car, I drove past and he was outside bringing groceries into into his house. And I stopped him and I said, Hey, my mom said that you've been cheating on me with all these different women. And he, you know, he was like, who? And I kept, I was listing off all these women that I had suspicion about. And my mom confirmed it and I was naming them all off. And he knew that he was busted and that my mom had snitched him out. And so he looked me dead in the eyes and he said, Oh, yeah? Well, why don't she tell you what her and I have been doing? And I will never forget the look in his eyes when he said that because it was like 
it was such confirmation for one. Like I felt it in my body. I knew that what he was saying was true. And the look in his eyes was like, he was so mad, but then that mad turned into instant remorse and instant regret for saying that out loud. He was so mad at my mom for telling me that he, that he was cheating on me with all these different women that I had suspected. But he also cheated on me with my, with my own mother. And when he said that, I just knew that what he was saying was true. It confirmed everything that I knew deep down was true. And so, of course, I flew back home and my mom was outside and she was just white as a ghost. And I got out of my car and I said, I need you to pack your bags and get the F out of my house. She's like, what are you talking about? What? What? What did he say? And I was like, you know what you've done. And she was panicking and she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then she got her phone out and she's like, mom knew about all this. My grandma. So my grandma had known about this. Mom knew about all this and you're going to find out. You'll see. You'll see. And then she got her phone out, put it on speakerphone and she called my grandma. And I'm just in my state of panic. Like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this just happened. What am I doing? What am I going to do? And she's over here. Mom, do you remember that time when um, when I told you that Jason was hitting on me and that and he was trying to hold my hand? Well, he's telling Lacey that we had an affair and tell her it's not true. Tell her, tell her it's not true. I've been honest with you this whole time. Tell her. My grandma didn't say anything to me. I, I felt so betrayed because I was, I was completely betrayed by the two people that I should have trusted more than anything in this world. And I was betrayed by my own mother and my own husband. I I had not even accused her of the affair. She had just assumed that he was honest with me and he told me and he confessed to it. And so I just, I don't even know what to say because it's like, how do you even begin to put the pieces together after something like that happens? But that's not even the worst part. And I say this a lot, like the affair wasn't the worst part. Of course, it was gut-wrenching and heartbreaking to learn about this. I felt so betrayed. But it was even after that, like my grandparents, who I loved more than anything and trusted more than anything, they knew that at, that my mom and my husband were at least holding hands from what she was telling them. So my mom was telling them that he was trying to get with her and that they would hold hands sometimes because it was like, and my mom, my mom even admitted that to me. She was like, I, I look at him like a son and he wanted to hold my hand and I was just holding him as a mother would a son. And I'm like, no mom, like my intuition, like I know better. I know that you're lying to me. I know he's being honest. And still to this day, my mom will not admit that anything ever happened. And I think that guilt, honestly, like deep down, I think it is eating her up because she has aged so much. Um, and her life is not good. Like I look at her life and I feel sorry for her and I'm going to get a lot more into like mother wounds and this betrayal and just being raised by narcissist and how that's affected my life and my relationships and the lessons that I've learned in life and just mourning and growing and, and trying to heal from that and break that generational cycle for my, for my child. There's, there's a lot to unpack there. Hey, it's Lacey, and I wanted to drop in to let you know that my signature course, Pain to Purpose, is going to be opening soon. Don't let your past or your present circumstances be a barrier to your financial independence when it should be the foundation of it. 
Pain to Purpose will help you transform your pain into purpose so that you can create what only you are here to create in this world. Own your story, activate your purpose, and impact lives. That is the slogan for Pain to Purpose. I feel like we are all gifted the experiences, the lessons, and the trials that we are here to experience in this world. And a lot of times we can turn that into our purpose and we can use that to move us forward and to help other people that's also been in that same situation and they just need some help getting out of it. So if you want to transform your pain into purpose and start activating your purpose and impacting lives and making money doing so, go to LaceyJane.com slash pain to purpose. There you can find out more information about the program and sign up for the wait list depending on when you're listening to this. And you can join if it's available just depending on whenever you're listening to this. So that's again, it's LaceyJane.com forward slash pain to purpose. I can't wait to see you in there. So I'm so glad I got my podcast now because now I can just make episodes about this and it's amazing. Um, so much I want to share on that. But like I said, the affair wasn't the worst part. It was feeling so betrayed, like no one told me. And then also feeling so alone afterwards. My mom just didn't try to sabotage that. She also tried to take my house from me. Here I am, you know, I'm now a single mom. I have no job other than my YouTube, which looking back, I had more than enough money. I could have made it on my own with just my YouTube money. But my husband at the time and my mom convinced me that there was no way that I'd ever be able to afford the mortgage and all of the expenses that I would have um, just on my YouTube income, which is a total bullcrap lie. I absolutely could have, but I believed I couldn't because they told me that I couldn't and I've never done it on my own and I didn't think that I would be able to. But looking back on it, I absolutely could have and they knew that and they were worried about that. So my mom, when she was living with me and we were getting along and everything, she told me that I needed to get a paper and I needed to write out that this home was going to be my home no matter what happened, like through the divorce or whatever, he was going to agree to give me my home um, to because the house was in both of our names. And so he totally agreed with it, had no problem with it, went ahead and signed it. I took it to the bank and got it notarized that way in case anything would happen. You know, my mom assured me that I needed to do this so that way he couldn't come back and try to take my house from me. He had no problem doing that, took it to the bank, got it notarized, and then my mom convinced me. She's like, you need to put that somewhere safe where he can't take it. And so we went back in the bedroom, and we found a place in the closet. So my mom knew where it was, and she she's like, okay, yeah, that's a good hiding spot. Let's keep it there, and he won't get to it. He won't know where it is. So I have this notarized letter saying that this house is my house no matter what. And he agreed to it. I signed it. He signed it. We got it notarized. Done deal. Good. We have it hidden. And then when all this came out and I kicked my mom out, my husband at the time tried to move back in because he, she needed to move into her rental house that he was staying in. So she moved back into her rental house and he came back to my house and I'm like, please don't let, please don't be here. Like I needed peace. I needed tranquility. I did not want this drama. I needed to work on just healing from this insane betrayal that I felt 
and he just started moving his stuff in. And so I remembered that I had that letter that he had signed saying that this was my house. And I went into my room to find it and it was gone. It it was gone. I didn't have the paper anymore. And my mom was the only person who had been in that house beside me. And obviously I didn't take it. So the only other person that could have taken it was my mom. Um, and my mom had also mentioned that she wanted to take the house like she wanted it for herself. Um, and so I think that that maybe was her plan was to convince me that I couldn't afford it on my own so that she could take the house from me. Even though I had that paper saying that it was my house, I didn't have the paper anymore. So there was no proof of that. And obviously at this point he needed to live, he needed somewhere to live. So he had to stay living with me in our house. And at this point he would not sign the paper again saying that that was his house because where else would he live? Yeah, it was extremely hurtful. Um, that went on for several months. I would basically stay in the bedroom with my daughter and be with her. You know, she was still newborn and we would sleep. I would sleep when she would sleep. We'd stay in the bedroom and my brother actually ended up moving in with us as well. And my brother was completely on my ex-husband's side as well. And they would gang up on me. And I had mentioned you know, I, I was going through a lot of health issues at this time. Every time I would stand up, I would black out. My heart would race. I didn't know what was going on with me. I really did not know. It took several years to get a diagnosis, which now, you know, I've been diagnosed with POTS, which is posterior orthostatic tachycardia syndrome and Lyme disease and some other issues. But at the time when all this was going on, I, I know for a fact that because of all of the trauma, it really made my symptoms flare up and all the childhood trauma too, right? Because everything else that I've been through, I never felt safe and protected by the people that should have protected me. And so my defense mechanism, you know, my, my body just did not feel safe. There's a really good book on this too called Your Body Keeps the Score. If you're interested in that, if you have dealt with a lot of childhood trauma, your body holds on to that. And I, I firmly believe that that's a big part of my um, illness was cor like correlated with the trauma that I've went through. Um, and so I was dealing with a lot of health issues. And so my brother and my husband at the time would make fun of me. They would tell me that I was just making it up, that I needed to get over it, that it was just all in my head, that I needed to come out of the bedroom. And I, every time I would come out of the bedroom, they would just make fun of me. And it was just awful. It was horrible. And I begged my grandma to, if I could live with her for a little bit. And, you know, my grandparents didn't really believe that the affair was happening because they believed my mom's side of the story. And they believed that my husband was just saying those things to try to tear our family apart because they didn't want to admit to themselves what their daughter has done. Even though after several years have passed, you know, my grandma had mentioned, you think I don't know what your mom does or has done? Um, and so I know she knows, but she's in denial and she wants to sweep it under the rug and pretend that everything is fine. And that is the problem. That is, that is a big part of the problem is keeping our mouths shut and not saying anything. Because if we don't say anything, then we're not validating ourselves and our own experiences, but we're also not validating the people that need to be heard, right? They need to be heard. They, they need a safe space to share their story. And I think it's really important to mention that 
this entire time, I mean, even still to this day, my mom will never admit what happened. She's never apologized for anything that happened. Um, and my ex still, his story has never changed. It's never changed. Even after I had cut both of them off, I didn't even speak to my mom for several years after this. And he never changed his story. And, you know, he had nothing to lose at this point. He had already lost me and his story never changed. I have just been trying to pick up the pieces ever since then. Um, I have completely changed and transformed my life in more ways than one. I cannot believe everything that I've went through and I've overcame it. And now I have a nonprofit where we build tiny homes for single moms. And I'm also a woman empowerment coach with a signature program called Pain to Purpose, where I literally help other women turn their pain into their purpose so they can help other people with what they've been through. You get to own your story, activate your purpose, and impact lives. Don't let your past or your present circumstances be a barrier to your financial independence when it should be the foundation of it. Pain to Purpose will help you transform your pain into purpose so that you can create what only you are here to create in this world. Truly, truly believe that we can take anything that happens to us and we can use it for good. We can use our story to help make a difference in other people's lives. You know, they may be at the same place where you were two, three, four, five years ago and you you made it through that. So now you get to help other people with what you've been through. And if, if I didn't go through everything that I went through, with my mom and my dad and my grandparents and my ex-boyfriends and my husband, I would not have felt called to start my nonprofit. I probably would not have broken the generational trauma cycle, right? Like I, I wouldn't have started this inner work, this healing work that I've done. I, if it wasn't for my illness, I wouldn't have got into holistic wellness and remedies and learning about how the body keeps the score and learning how to regulate my nervous system and learning all of the things that I know now because I've lived it, right? I've lived it, I've learned it, and I'm still learning and I'm still growing and there's so much more to learn. But seeing how I've overcome so much in my life, I now just want to help people, right? I've always been a philanthropist at heart that is my mission. That is my purpose. I just want to help people. And you can't, I couldn't really help anyone with this big story that I had inside of me like this, this, I felt like I was being so inauthentic because I felt like I was keeping this massive secret inside of me and living in shame because this was so embarrassing. It was such, so embarrassing. I didn't want to tell anybody and I felt like it was my fault. And just living with so much shame over it made me want to shut down and close close myself off because it was just embarrassing. But learning to speak about it and realizing I had nothing to be ashamed about. I was gaslit. I was manipulated. I was so young. I was taken advantage of. And realizing that now and all of the healing work that I've done, the big missing piece of this healing journey for me and the cycle of grief that I've needed has been getting this out, getting this story out of me, sharing it with people using my voice. And it's all for good. Like this is all for good. 
keeping it inside of me was only slowly killing me. It was really affecting my health in every way, physically, mentally, emotionally, even financially. Getting it out has been so healing for me especially healing for the 20 year old version of me that was, you know, completely alone, a single mom dealing with health issues. I have everyone ganged up around me and I feel like I had no one to listen to me. I felt like no one believed anything that was going on. I mean, it has just been so healing for that version of myself to get this out and to have so much support that I could have ever I, I could have never fathomed the amount of support, love, and encouragement I've received. And I can just imagine how many other people are going to resonate with my story um, and find you know little pieces of my story within their story and give them the courage to be able to speak out about their life and their story. Because as I said in the beginning, when we have trauma in relationships, we can also find healing within relationships. And that's how we heal. And not feeling so alone, not feeling like we have to keep these secrets inside of us, not feeling ashamed for our story, but boldly speaking about our story and our experiences so that the people that need to hear what we have to say can find us and they can resonate with us and they can find themselves in our stories so that they can find healing. And that's really what it's all about. So there's so much more I want to talk about, but I just want to thank you so much for being here and thank you for listening to my story. And if you have just five seconds, could you please give this podcast a five-star rating? As you know, this is my first episode. I just launched it and I would be so grateful if you just took a couple seconds to give me a five-star rating. This will help get our podcast viewed by more people that need to hear what I have to share And so they don't feel so alone as well. And if you do make a review, please email my team at hello at lacyjane.com. Let us know that you rated the podcast with five stars and I will get a goodie sent out to you. Thank you so much for being here and I'll talk to you in the next one.